Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are fortunate enough to have one of my favorite people and a repeat guest on the Bregman Leadership Podcast, Amy Edmondson. She has written the book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. I love the topic. I love the book. Uh, Amy is a professor at, uh, at Harvard, and I'm so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What is... A fearless organization. What is psychological safety? A fearless organization is simply one in which people feel able to bring their full self to work, feel able to you know, really offer their knowledge, their ideas, their talents, their skills to the, to the shared enterprise, you know, to the work we're trying to do. Great. And we've seen a lot of research in general. Google has done a bunch of research on this about how important it is. So I want to unpack it a little bit because I've always had questions about this and I think it's super important. And and I also, you know, f- uh, hear people who defend their way of approaching organizational life that may not create as much psychological safety. So I want to explore some of that. So first, let's just answer the basic question is why is psychological safety important? I think psychological safety is important because when people are afraid to offer what they know or to ask for help or to express a concern about something, bad things happen. And that's so psychological safety is kind of the absence of interpersonal fear. And I I want to be very clear about that. It's not the absence of all fear. I think it's, you know, we're all going to continue to be afraid of missing the deadline or afraid of the competition or you know, afraid of not doing uh, the very best job we can, but we don't want to be afraid of each other. And we don't want to be afraid of the boss because then that gets us into some counterproductive behaviors like hiding and, you know, covering up. And, and so, you know, psychological safety is just absolutely crucial to any work that involves, you know, that involves knowledge, ingenuity, creativity. What do you say to, leaders who will say, look, like my people are too sensitive that, you know, it's great. I agree. Psychological safety. But if I, you know, question them, they begin to, you know, not feel psychologically safe. And I can't run a company without questioning my people because, you know, I, I need to question my people because that's how we get to a better, a better answer. So I think my people need to grow a thicker skin. Which may be true, by the way. So, I mean, in some ways, both are true. It's a little bit of a misunderstanding. Like, I actually think, yes, it is okay to question people. In fact, it's incredibly important to question people. And yes, people should not, um, people should learn how not to interpret a question as an attack. A question is a sign of respect. It essentially says, I believe, you know, I think highly enough of you to ask you something. Um, because I want to know the answer, or I expect that you will be able to give me an answer, that you will be able to enlighten me on this topic, this issue. So 
You know, I think many times here's the, the fundamental misunderstanding that that idea represents is that, you know, psychological safety is kind of a trade off against high standards, you know, against mm -hmm. holding people accountable. And I see it very differently. I, I see those as two really important dimensions of, of leadership, of, of management. You know, you've got to um, convey to people aspirations to do a great job. You know, you've got to, you've got to um, um, motivate, inspire, and explain what good looks like around here, what we expect, what we, what we hope to see. And, um, and you've got to create um, an environment where people feel very able to be candid, to speak up, you know, to kind of offer, like we'll all speak up about the things we absolutely are confident are brilliant, right? We'll right. all we'll all speak up about the things that you know, you know, we think will reflect well on us. It's where the you know where the fuzzy boundary is. You know, every every one of us puts a threshold somewhere. You know, there are things I just can't say. But what you don't want are the things that you just can't say to be mission critical, work relevant stuff. So what are some ways that you've seen leaders in your research, you've seen leaders kind of create uh, high expectations, set really high expectations, maintain those expectations and maintain psychological safety at the same time, you know, holding people accountable and safe at the same time? You know, in, in healthcare, they call that a just culture. But but let me be very specific. So what what I've seen people do is you got to be pointing to important goals, important work. You know, there's there's got to be I think one of the ways you get people inspired to work hard is by having an important purpose, an important mission, an important goal, you know, that that's really worthy. But the most important thing you can do after that's been conveyed is paint reality, like talk about. So for example, in healthcare delivery, Julie Morath, who's just a, um, a great leader in the, you know, in the context of a large integrated healthcare um, hospital, um, will say often healthcare is by its nature, a complex error prone system. She'll literally say that all the time, you know, healthcare by its nature is a complex error prone system. Why is she saying that? She's saying it because you know, our goal is to have 100% patient safety, high quality care, you know, to do the very best we can for our patients. Um, and keep in mind, healthcare is a very complex error prone system. So what she's saying is, given the nature of the work we do, given the nature of the organization in which we work, your voice is mission critical. You cannot assume things are just going well. Things are much more likely to be not going well. And the only way, you know, the only thing that stands between us and really bad failures that we don't want is people not being willing to speak up about it. You know, you remind me of something that somebody said to me once when I was a mentor of mine who is actually was has been my ski coach for years and years and is also a writing coach. And, and we're both at a high enough level in those things now where we she's higher than me. Uh, but we train instructors and, and there was an instructor that I was training who, 
um, was getting very defensive when I was giving him feedback. And right. I said to her, how do you give people feedback in a way that they don't get defensive? And her answer, and this is one of the top skiers in the country. She was on the national Alpine team. And she said, oh, that's easy. Skiing is stupid. Nobody, uh, you know, will will care about the feedback. But then she said, of course, that's not true, right? They do. Like people invest their self-esteem in everything, right? Anything you do, people invest their self-esteem in it. Making a beautiful turn on the snow, we're going to invest our self-esteem in it. But I said, then how about writing? Because writing is really personal. And she said, oh, that's easy. I'm, I, I don't, it's not about them. It's about the story. What I care about is making a great story. And so I will give them feedback, but it's not about them. It's about what they can do to create a story. And you're saying the same thing. It's about healthcare. It's about the outcomes that we're trying to create. It's not about you. And so it's not about, it doesn't matter whether you're right or you're wrong or whatever. It matters like, are we working together to develop some outcome? And if we can keep that focus, we can create psychological safety at the same time as high expectations. And additionally, I, you know, keep, I want to keep our attention back on the work itself because that's what matters. And I want to keep reminding you that the nature of this work is that stuff happens, you know, give you yeah, normalize it so that if you're if you're pointing out an error, you know, if you're admitting a problem, it's not that you're a weak person or a poor performer. It's that you're an observant questioner of this complex system that's never exactly the same for, you know, for two minutes in a row. Right. So it's a reframe. You know, reframe from whiner to problem detector, you know, detective. What are things that leaders do that erode psychological safety? Ah, well, you know, A, a failure to ask questions. So when, when leaders act as if they believe they have all the answers, and, and I, I don't think too many leaders do that deliberately. Right. Be a just automatic stance. You know, what you know, I want like, to say, though, is that there's also a way of asking questions that still presents you as the person who has all the answers, meaning I can ask questions in in a way where I'm truly curious or I can ask questions as in this. This the, What I'm about to say is not a question. You don't really believe that, do you? Right. Correct. I mean, it's got a question mark at the end, but it's not a question. And so there's a way of asking questions you know, when it comes back to our, the conversation we were having around the importance of asking questions, if you ask them with a true desire to get to a stronger outcome, that's one thing. If you're doing it in order to prove that you're smarter or they're dumb or they haven't thought this through, then that probably really erodes. It sure does. And lawyers are, are trained to ask questions in a way that they're trying, you know, they know in advance what the answer is or they wouldn't ask it. That's not what we're talking about, right? That That's very skilled. It's very important work that they do. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the kind of question. And I, I call it a good question when, A, you don't know the answer and you know you don't know the answer. And you're curious to find out, right? And so a good question is one that helps us focus on something important and, and, and gives us room to respond, neither yes, no, nor a leading question, nor is it just, hey, what's the state of the world, right? It's, a, it's, it's narrow enough. It's what do you think about this issue? What are we missing here, right? Those good questions. Right. What do leaders do that erode psychological safety? So one of them that you said was you're the smartest person in the room. You're not asking questions. You're... Why would anyone else even bother, right? Because you can never, you know, never really tell that person anything. Um, right. Another thing is, of course, um, the the classic. I'm gonna. I'm not really listening. I'm looking at my phone. I'm, you know. So it's not. It doesn't feel safe. 
you were saying something that you believe mattered or you wouldn't be saying it. And I'm busy um, looking at my phone. I'm distracted. I'm, I'm looking around the room. So that, that, that erodes psychological safety. Acting as if effort is the only thing between us and, you know, unbridled success, right? That, you know, that in other words, that if you, if people were just willing to do their jobs, we'd get everything we want. We'd get all the goals achieved we want. It's just not, I mean, it is true in some very narrow uh, slices of our economy, but for most people, that's just not true. It's not just effort. It's not, people aren't failing to achieve really aspirational goals because they're lazy. They're failing because there's, you know, stuff happens. There's uncertainty. There's, you know, there's, changing there's, dynamics in the industry. There's uh, right, right, right. And so it's acknowledging that it's not putting it all on the person, because usually when you sort of think it's all based on the effort, there's an undercurrent of if I were doing it, I wouldn't be running into those same problems. Exactly. So, you know, I, I love when, when leaders are kind of um, recognizing that the extraordinary things that people are doing throughout this organization are, are things that they would do better than I, not in every case, but in many, many cases, because they're trained in engineering or in marketing or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, they're, they're delighted by the ingenuity and the skills and the, uh, you know, and the brains of the people they've so what, what should a leader do when they are looking at choices that, that an employee is making and those people are not making the choices that that person would make? Yeah, I mean, I, I make no mistake. Each and every one of us needs and deserves feedback. It's like you were saying about the, the, the great ski coach. You know, so it, this is not the case that anything goes or that everything all employees do is pure gold. Not at all. I think the um, the idea of psychological safety is often, you know, misunderstood as as being nice or stepping back. No, that's that's the comfort zone. That's not psycho psychological safety. Is about um, is about candor, which is not easy, you know. And in, in some cases, it's you know really challenging. So I think you remind yourself um, that person needs and deserves my feedback. You know, it, it it occurs to me that that giving feedback in too harsh a way dilutes psychological safety, but not giving feedback creates uncertainty in a way that that also dilutes psychological safety because I don't know where I stand and I don't know what you're thinking and I don't know how I'm performing and then I'm sort of rootless in that way. And, you know, the word harsh is interesting because there there are some opportunities or some times where you should be harsh. I mean, if someone violates a protocol, you know, that really, you know, safety protocol, for example, I think you got to be harsh. And I think people should expect harshness. You know, when you do something that is widely understood in this organization to be blameworthy, you, you should get some harsh feedback. Like, I'm really disappointed. But giving harsh feedback on something that someone would not have been expected, could could not really rightly have been expected to foresee unless they had a crystal ball right? or because they, you know, they're new to this kind of task or this kind of role, um, then they need and deserve. I mean, all of us need and deserve feedback to keep getting better at whatever it is that we're, we're doing. Is it possible for a mid-level manager to create psychological safety when the senior leaders don't create it? I mean, is it something that has to start at the top or can you interrupt the cycle in the middle or is that too difficult? 
No, you absolutely can. In fact, I think it's one of I think it's one of the most exciting things about being a middle manager. You can't control everything. You can't control those above you, but there is this thing you can control. And it's so powerful. Like you can in fact create a pocket of psychological safety and I don't even mind calling it a pocket of learning and engagement in your group, your team. How do you do that without throwing the senior leaders under the bus? Because an easy way to do it is to go like, whoa, that the CEO's really lost it over there. But, you know, and now I'm the good guy and and the CEO's the enemy. Well, I do it. I think that there may be rare conditions where you might have to do something like that. But I think it's more important to really just focus on what you can and do control what you can and do have influence over. So the way you do it is you forget, forget them for the moment. I mean, they're, they're my problem, but they don't have to be your problem. Right? So what we, what, what I want us to do is take a look at what's on our plate. You know, what is it that we are being held accountable for delivering in this particular time frame? And then, um, you know, let's get on the same side of the proverbial table and let's take a look at, at who needs to who needs to do what and how we will all support each other in doing the best possible job. How we'll bring back the keys to the kingdom. You know, how will we let people know what we're learning out there as we do this work? Like, let's make this an engine of learning. I love that, Amy. And you know, it's interesting. I was I was just participating in a coach training and playing out a role play and and I honestly, like I was coaching someone across from me and I just was like turned off by them. Like, I mean, they were like technically a client, but I, I just like, I was annoyed. I was annoyed with them. And, and I can't entirely tell you why it was just the dynamic of what was happening, but I recognized that dynamic and we were sitting opposite each other. Like you would often do in any kind of role play or coaching someone. And what I did that fundamentally changed the dynamic in an instant is I spun my chair around so that I was sitting side by side with them and I had this piece of paper and I said, let's look at this together. And it totally changed the dynamic. So it's like what you're describing, which is, you know, uh, uh, energetically, if you're if you're facing someone versus sitting side by side and looking and working at the same thing, that even, you know, the physical act of that and also the conceptual act of that kind of changes the psychological safety dynamic. Yes, it really does. And, you know, when we're side by side, either physically or metaphorically, we can now look forward other than backward or at each other. Right. I mean, I can sort of see the shortcomings in you and let me try to fix them. Or I can say, wow, you know, let's look ahead. And what, what you know, what do we know? And what do we not know? And how are we, gonna, you know, how are we going to make progress? It's one of the reasons people say if you have a hard time having a conversation with your child, get in a car and drive. Because you're both sort of sitting side by side. You're also not, you know, staring at each other in a way that that might be difficult. You talk about humor undermining psychological safety, and I've seen that. And on the other hand, we also don't want to be humorless uh, in our organization. So how do we, you know, I, I, I think it has to do with, you know, humor at the expense of someone. But how do we, especially, and I've seen this with groups and teams which are predominantly male more than with female where they're sarcastic or they're making jokes. And it's kind of like, that's, that's where you're in. And when you become the detractor from that or someone who doesn't do that, it it's like that almost creates 
as a lack of psychological safety for the rest of the people because they're not trust. So there's like this weird dynamic that happens. And I'm curious to get your perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, it's tempting to say, okay, there's two kinds of humor, but it's way more complex than that clearly. And actually I'm a big believer in humor. I think humor, humor is often one of the great ways to diffuse the tension, making it more psychologically safe than less, you know, because I, in fact, Sometimes what's happening when we're not feeling psychologically safe is we're taking ourselves too seriously. I mean, part of what's, um, you know, so, so delightful um, about human beings is we're all, you know, we're fallible. We're, by definition, each and every one of us is fallible. And as soon as we just sort of can get a little more comfortable laughing at our human condition of fallibility, it's good, right? It, it helps build psychological safety. The kind is you correctly, you know, alluded to, one kind of humor that's a real real problem is the kind that makes fun of someone, you know, that, that's at someone's uh, expense. And, you know, there, there's research on how humor that the, that's, the article's called jeer pressure, but hum, humor that literally makes it less psychologically safe, right? Whereas humor that's, you know, us about the world, that can be fine. Um, but I think it's also, you know, there's a way the, what I write about in the book, there's a way in which humor is sometimes used to test the limits. There's I use the example from Uber, unfortunately, where the a boss says to an engineer, um, yeah, I, I will if you'll sleep with me, you know, and it's it's like a joke, but it's not a joke. I mean, it's funny. Right. And and I, I don't know how to categorize that kind of humor, but it's the kind of humor. Um, well, because there's always some truth underneath all humor. So. It's like when the truth underneath that humor is so unsavory and so not safe. Exactly. It's making a very unsafe suggestion. So it's, um, yes, it's the old many a truth is spoken in jest. So if this is just your way of trying to get something in there that's an attack or an insult, um, then that's not going to be a way to you know, that's going to make it psychologically unsafe, not safe. But humor, I would not take humor out of the workplace um, more, more broadly. You talk about the danger of silence and the responsibility of a bystander, you know, to when they see things to say something. And I think that's also a tall order, right? Because there's so many reasons why people would be hesitant to speak up especially in an environment in which it's psychologically unsafe. And I've seen these situations where someone really wants to, but then they realize they end up in the same boat they're trying to help someone else get out of. And it's kind of in their, it's it's in the long-term interest of the organization to speak up, but if it's in their both short-term and long-term interest not to be the one to speak up. And it might be better for them to stay silent. And how do you, how do you work with that? Well, I, you know, I often find myself, you know, talking about this sort of weird relationship between psychological safety and courage. And, you know, my, my, my aspiration is to remove the need for excessive courage from the workplace. So what, what you're, what you're asking about are those situations where someone needs to exercise more courage than is comfortable. And my, I just have great empathy for, I, so I want to just repeat that sentence because I think it's a really important sentence that the role of a leader in terms of creating psychological safety is to remove the necessity or the requirement for people in the organization to show excessive courage. Exactly. And, and, and partly just out of sheer, sheer empathy, right? That's a, that's a lot to ask of people, partly because it just doesn't work. Right. So 
you know, many times, uh, you know, people will say, well, that person just should have said something. It's like, well, that's true, but unhelpful. Right. And, and you know, and, and as a manager, you are much more interested. You should be much more interested in efficacy, like what works than in what should, you know, normatively what someone should have done, because that's right. not helpful. If you want to get the results that you need to get, you got to figure out how do I make it easy for people to offer what they know? Sit there relying on on courage or duty um, to make it happen. Three things that leaders can do to create psychological safety. <laughs> I talk about um, setting the stage, inviting input, and responding productively or appreciatively. And so setting the stage is really about framing the work. It's kind of reminding uh, reminding people early and often what we're up against, you know, whether whether we're um, in, you know, conditions of extreme uncertainty and challenge or medium uncertainty and challenge, whatever it is, like, let's just let's name it. You know, we're doing innovation work here. This is the kind of work in which the early small failures are mission critical to subsequent stunning success, right? So we're sort of setting that stage in a way that creates the rationale for voice. It makes it logical to expect that we should all be hearing from each other. And then even, you know, as good a job as you do on that, on framing the work, setting the stage, you still have to be proactive. So inviting engagement is fundamentally about asking good questions. It's about, you know, Peter, what's, what, what are you seeing in this situation? What are you hearing out there from customers? If I'm, if I'm constantly exercising the art of a good question, I'm demonstrating curiosity, I'm demonstrating respect, and I'm gonna be hearing things and making it safe. And then the third thing is, you know, you come to me with bad news. How do I respond? you know, with, with fury or um, with disappointment about the news, but true appreciation that you were for that clear line of sight, right? So it's, it's kind of the art of stop, challenge, choose. You know, when someone comes, you know, says, says something you don't love, pause. Don't just react immediately, pause. Challenge your initial reaction and turn it into something useful. And something useful is, is thinking about the future. What's gonna happen if? That feels like such an important element for leaders, which is you're going to have a gut reaction and it's not right. always a smart idea to follow it, right? To exactly. sort of pause long enough to say, what's the outcome I want to achieve and right. how am I best, uh, uh, most likely to achieve that outcome? Think in terms of efficacy, you know, think in terms of what do you want to achieve, not what do you feel? Okay. Right. Three things that someone who is living in an environment that they feel is psychologically unsafe can do. <laughs> well, I I want to say that there 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 are things you can do, right? You can't, and and it starts with first acknowledge that this is hard, right? Acknowledge that you're in a you know you're in a difficult position, right? It's, it's, it's what you're what you um, need to do isn't easy. So kind of let yourself off the hook for thinking you should just be able to magically fix this. Um, second, um, do what you can to model and show respect and engage your colleagues, um, make their lives a little better. How do you do that? You know, ask, ask questions. Again, every time I ask a question of you, like you're asking of me, you're showing curiosity and respect. That makes a real and palpable difference 
in 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 my life, my work life, right? So fo stop focusing on what you wish others would do and just start showing up differently yourself. It doesn't seem like a very powerful thing to do, but it really is. It, it makes it makes a difference. Great. Amy, it has been such a pleasure having you. Her book, it's this is Amy Edmondson. Her book is The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Amy, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.